If there is a connection this morning between our, our study in God's Word and Mother's Day, it has to be that idea of a steadfast love. Uh, it says there in verse 5 of 36, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Oh, it was the next one. Verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And you notice that it talks about sin at the beginning of that psalm as well. And you think about your relationship with God, your relationship with your mother. A lot of times your steadfast, their steadfast love is best known when we're not at our best, isn't it? <laughs> when we've done wrong. So we are thankful for our mothers, we're thankful for the Lord, and we're looking forward to hearing from Him this morning, from, from His Word. So let's just bow before Him and, and just ask that He direct and guide our hearts. Lord, thank You, thank You that we are able to worship You. What a privilege to be able to open our mouths to sing these truths about forgiveness, these truths about uh, your redeeming love, your patience, your compassion for us. And I just pray that as we look into your word this morning, as we continue on in this message, uh, the prophet Daniel, the message, your message through the prophet Daniel, Lord, that our hearts would continue to be alert to your spirit speaking, that we would understand the truths that you would have us understand and that we would rightly apply those truths to our lives. And at the end, in the end, we would come out as people overwhelmed with an understanding of the blessing of the relationship that we have with you. So lead us, we pray, in this time. Together we are fully dependent on you to hear to understand and to know the truths that we're looking at this morning. So lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we preach, or as I preach, as we study this book, we go through some, some deep things, some, uh, yeah, sometimes some heavy things, but I hope you're encouraged. I mean, as we went through chapter 8, I was encouraged, um, and I hope you were with me, just with, with the message that there was in that prof, prophetic mission, prophetic vision. God knows what's going to take place. It's part of his plan. And we get hints regarding how it's going to play out. Hints that we understand will only be cleared up completely when it happens. And that's the nature of prophecy. But you know, that shouldn't bother us because our confidence is not in our ability to comprehend everything. Our confidence is in God. Our confidence is in his control over the situation. And that's really what this prophecy is moving us toward. I have greater understanding that God knows. He knows what's going on. We're confident in him. He's got it together. And so there's always this imbalance. God is under control. God has things under control. And I think throughout this life, we understand more and more that as human beings, we have no control. 
We have no control over what is going on. Sometimes even in our own very life, it seems the decisions that we make. And we accept this imbalance. As children of God, thankful that we have a loving Heavenly Father who is in control. When we accept this, when we accept these glimpses that we get of his plan, when we accept who he is and and how much he cares for us, we go, this is enough. This is enough because this this is my part. And so our capability to understand even is limited. But that's okay. Our responsibility is limited. We fulfill what God has put before us. We just do our part. It's not up to us to save the world. And it's not up to us to save ourselves from the world too. So our vulnerability is limited because God is going to care for us. And so we just sort of tag along with him and we are about or should be about the king's business. That's where we ended last week. And I think we need to be doing this with confidence. Even though our Antiochus, I can never say his name really well, Antiochus Epiphanes is coming. Remember, he was the Antichrist of that time. He was the one Daniel was told. He's going to come in. He's going to attack God, attack his people, attack the worship of God. And as Jesus said, there are going to be many antichrists, especially as we go on into the end times. There is going to be the antichrist, but there are going to be many who foreshadow him, many partial fulfillments. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he was one of those partial fulfillments. Did God deal with him? After three years, that guerrilla group, the Maccabeans, they rose up and they beat him off. But you know, God's victories are not just political. They're much greater than that. As we were talking about this, this chapter at dinner time last Sunday, after this, my wife brought up uh, Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee. And he went to the Decapolis, remember? And he cast out the demon. You think about that. Antiochus Epiphany offered up a pig on the altar in the temple as an offense to the Jews, their God, their religion, their worship. And Jesus casually crosses the Sea of Galilee going through a terrible storm, calming that gets to the other side, goes to the Decapolis, which is a Greek region, a holdover from the time of the Seleucid dynasty when it controlled that area. And he casts a demon out of a man who had a legion of demons, and those demons go into 2,000 pigs, and they run down into the sea. You think, man, that's payback. (laughs) That's Jesus Christ saying, you think you have power? Antiochus Epiphanes, a whole army, a nation behind him. And Jesus strolls into his territory. 
as we talked about it, it came to my mind that Antioch, Acts chapter 11. Remember, Christians were first called, no, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Antioch was the capital of the region during the Seleucid dynasty. Bears the name of Antiochus. And if you, I was trying to find out if it was named specifically after him, and I couldn't, but as I was doing my little search, Wikipedia calls Antioch, okay? Godless Wikipedia calls Antioch the cradle of Christianity. It's where the first missionaries were sent out to the Gentile world. Was that payback? (laughs) Was that God showing, hey, listen, these guys are going to rise up, but they have no power over my plan, over what I am accomplishing. In fact, they are just a part of my plan. They will highlight my power, my glory, and what I'm going to do. Do you want to tag along? Be about the king's business. We can be about the king's business with confidence, not just, oh, I'll just keep doing it, you know, it doesn't seem, with confidence. Because God has shown in many different ways down throughout history that these antichrists will rise up. Bad things will happen to his people. And yet, He'll show his power, and he will win. He'll be victorious in the end. And those who are serving with him, we will get to share in that victory. So a lot of hope here in these prophetic messages, even as we we think, wow, there's doom and gloom coming. There's difficult times. Well, we just need to be about the king's business. And Daniel is. And as we go into chapter 9, we get a glimpse of the character of Daniel's prayers. We know Daniel's a man of prayer, right? We remember. He was the guy who continued to pray. He was faithful. And each chapter in this second part of the book of Daniel is a prophetic revelation. And this is the first revelation that's initiated by Daniel. The first two come with kind of visions Out of the blue, out of nowhere, God brings these visions to Daniel. Daniel's kind of upset. We can see how he wouldn't want them, desire them, but they came. But this one is initiated because Daniel is on his knees and he is praying. And this prayer was offered up in the first year of the Medo-Persian Empire under the reign of Darius, who appropriately was the monarch who threw Daniel in the lion's den. Because of his prayer. And we think, oh, wait a second. This is the backdrop for this prayer. Or maybe I should say, Daniel going into the lion's den is the backdrop for this prayer, not vice versa. And we think, okay, maybe this is, you know, we we just thought of the lion's den being the big deal. We think Daniel going down in the lion's den and worried about the lions. And maybe he was just so focused on 
his prayer, which is a heart-wrenching prayer. And the reply from God, the revelation that came to God that he was just sort of pushing the lions to one side, you know, leave me alone, I'm, I'm in prayer here. I'm getting something from God. I'm communicating to God and he's communicating to me. I wonder, I wonder how close this prayer was to that particular situation. We find out these truths about this chapter or this prayer in the first couple of verses, but also in there, we find out that Daniel is reading prophecy. Let me just read these first couple verses for you. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azarias, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the book of the numbers of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, there must pass before the end of desolation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. We find out that Daniel the prophet read the other prophets. That's sort of interesting to me. Because, I mean, generally we think of them as, you know, they're one group and it all came to them because we're all receiving this at one time. But no, this was over generations, over, over centuries. And the prophets who were prophesying would read the prophets who went before them. And Daniel did that and he thought, okay, I've got something here. Because in chapter 25 of Jeremiah, it talks about there being a 70-year span of Babylon's power. They come in, they decimate Jerusalem, and they take the people away. And he's going, hey, we're almost at 70 years. It's almost over. And so what we have that follows this prayer is a preparation for the return. Daniel says, want to pray a prayer of repentance a prayer of restoration and so that is what this prayer is that sort of sets the stage for us going into this prayer he's thinking we're almost done the exile we're going to go back what should we do how should we be thinking where should our heart be and as we go through this this prayer these first verses or first half 1 to 19, we're going to see that with Jeremiah, Daniel is confessing for breaking the commands. With Moses, he recalls the curse that brought this calamity on them. And with the Lord, he remembers that we can still call out for compassion. And we do this with Daniel. So let's begin reading verses 3 to 8. See how he prays in light of the fact that he thinks this is almost over. He says, then I turned my face to the Lord, verse 3, to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, please for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God. I made a confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong 
and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. So through his understanding of Jeremiah, Daniel knows what? More than anything, they need to confess. They need to repent. This is interesting because I think if it was you and I who's reading the book of Jeremiah and we came to that chapter 25 where it talks about a 70-year time span, 70 years for Babylon... Okay, let's stay focused. Let's work. (laughs) No problem, Lisa. Don't worry. If we we came to that chapter 25 where it said 70 years and the Babylonian kingdom is going to fail, we would just be going, yahoo, we're getting out of here. We're done with this. Punishment's over. But what was Daniel focused on? What was he thinking about? You see, it's never about just the end of the punishment. It's about the relationship. It's about the restoration of a relationship. And Daniel was looking at what was wrong. What went wrong? What brought them to the place that they were in captivity? And so it's contrition It's confession, it's repentance. Lord, we've we've sinned. We've sinned. He wants the relationship with God restored. He just doesn't want to get out of the end of this punishment. This relationship has been trampled on, not just by Babylon, Not really by Babylon. Babylon were being used by God to punish the Israelites for their rebellion, for forgetting about their God, for worshiping false gods, for doing whatever they wanted to do. You see, the relationship was trampled on by God's special children. That's who really stepped on the relationship. Imagine you're raising your child and they are rebellious. They do something against you and and there's a punishment. There's a punishment and they just kind of snort after, well, glad that's over with. Let's carry on. Is that what you were hoping for as a parent? (laughs) No. No. You want them to understand they've done wrong. You want there to be a process of repentance. 
You want restoration in the relationship. And we understand that in human terms, especially if we're parents. But so often we forget that when it comes to our relationship with God. Difficulties come. And we just kind of shake ourselves and go, well, glad that's over with. We don't think, why did that come? Because it's not that every bad thing is tied to a particular sin. Sometimes they're just bad things that happen. But there are times when we get ourselves into trouble, aren't there? Where it's our sin that has separated us from God. And sometimes we don't even care about it. We go, we go on like that until we realize like the Israelite people, all of a sudden they're plopped down in a whole new geographical setting and they go, we're far from God. It took that. It took that kind of a transition for them to realize, for them to come to grips with, for them to understand we've sinned. And here Daniel is, and this is amazing to me, he owns Israel's guilt. He doesn't just pray for those sinners out there, the rest of Israel. As a prophet, as part of the people of God, as a person, an individual, he understands and accepts his participation in sin. When we think, Daniel, he was a great guy. He could have said, well, you know, I'm Daniel. I'm the one who came to this new country and I did not eat of the king's food. I didn't defile myself by, by leaving behind even the ceremonial eating that God asked us to do. He could have said, I'm Daniel. I'm the guy who prayed when it was illegal to pray. Forgive those other people, Lord. No. Daniel understood. Maybe better than we do. I think maybe sometimes when we pray, it's with this idea that, well, we confess, but our confession is not that earnest. Our repentance is not that deep. Because, I mean, I, I go to church every Sunday, and I don't kill people outright or involve myself directly in the perversion of this society. But you know, we need to understand there are trace elements of the sins of our society in the actions and attitudes of our everyday. In fact, sometimes there are more than just trace elements. In fact, there are ways that we are worse as believers than the people out there. Say, how so? God's steadfast love? We've received God's steadfast love. He's shown us his grace. He's worked in us through his spirit. He's brought us to the cross and he's caused us to understand that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. 
And yet I still turn around and go back to that sin. So you see how as Christians, as people who are children of God, we have more ability to attack that relationship than the people who are wandering around out there who don't really know anything about what's going on, right? And so with a deeper relationship with God, Daniel even takes on more responsibility. You and I, we should do that as well. Someone out there in the world, they might look at their life and go, wow, I've done some wrong things. But when we look at our sin, as the children of God, we understand the love that he's had for us. We understand the depth of the offense against a loving heavenly father. And we should be able to repent better than anyone else in terms of sorrow and a turning, a turning back to him. God showed a steadfast love. Three times in that psalm, steadfast love. Sted, why steadfast? What is, the, wh- what is it in the English language we're trying to communicate here? There's a Hebrew word called hesed, and it means covenantal love. A promised commitment that is unchanging, unchanging. Grace. Grace. Amazing grace. Sometimes we are only truly aware of that grace when we're in repentance mode. Because we understand how gracious God is because we've offended him and yet he still says, I am going to love you. Daniel understands the imbalance. He says, God, you are righteous. No need for superlatives, for adjectives, for explanation. God, you're righteous. You're just righteous. Period. Boom. Period. Right there at the end. You're righteous. Nothing more. And to us, he says, open shame. Twice through those verses, we're open shame. We failed. We got it wrong. We've messed up. And there's this imbalance. God is perfect. We are not. We're anything but. We see it. We saw it before when we were talking about the imbalance and the introduction. God's control. God has everything under control. We do not. Here, it's behavior. It's character. Righteousness. God is. That's it. He's righteous. And we're not. But he says, when he talks about God, to you belong mercy and forgiveness. He's not saying this is your responsibility, God. You're obligated. You better come through. 
And he's saying, just like you're righteous, this is another part of your character. You're merciful. You're compassionate. This is part of your covenantal commitment to us. And it's amazing because some, so many people in this world, and sometimes us, we think about God as being vindictive. We think about him, oh, he's just an angry God. He's a God who judges. He is a God who judges. But the first thing in his character, his default, his go-to, is compassion and forgiveness. And the reason that people don't see his compassion and forgiveness is because they're running from it. (laughs) They're not looking to God. They're just looking to do what they want to do. And so, Daniel is expressing this in his prayer to the Lord. The nature and the mercy of God. And they're saying, he's saying, this is how you are going to respond to your covenant people. This grace, this love. And you know, it's not simply, repentance is not simply something we're, you know, we're, we're sort of opening our hearts and, and a negative thing in terms of we're sorrowful. We, it brings us to a place where we have a deeper understanding of God's love for us. There's such a positive in true repentance we need to understand that. We need to remember it. And we, we, we see that we'll only understand God when we truly confess. We recognize, we repent in communion with the Lord. And Daniel, he knew this. Daniel was a man of God and he understood the need to repentance and he gained the benefit. You see, I'm not just in this opening part. God is not just in this opening part of this prayer, trying to dig a hole for us. And I'm not trying to dig a hole for you as I talk about repentance. We're already in the hole. (laughs) What Daniel's expressing here is we've only got one way to look when we understand that we're in the hole, and that is to God. That is where our hope is God is our deliverer. So the first part, confession. Because the book of Jeremiah, you know, up till you get to 25 where it talks about 70 years and Babylon's over. Daniel was reading through a whole lot of repentance. A whole lot of talk about the need for repentance because of the sin of Israel. And so that's what his mind was full of as he started this prayer. It wasn't just, oh, it's almost done. Oh, we've got a lot to repent for. And you know what? You and I, <laughs> we're no different. So important if we want to be in communion with God. A lot of repentance, daily repentance, always considering And I'm not saying you're worse than me or they're worse than us. It's always us and God 
And God is righteous. And we're not. Well, the next passage, the next part of this passage, 9 to 15, brings up another name, brings up Moses. Let's read these verses. It says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words when he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we've not entreated the favor of the Lord, our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. So through understanding Moses, Daniel knows that their willful disobedience have placed them under a curse that results in calamity. Obviously, Jeremiah wasn't the only book that Daniel was reading. He wasn't just going back to the prophets or the ones we consider the prophets or the prophetic books, but he was going back further to the book of Moses, the book of law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And he was understanding a relationship between obedience and disobedience, blessing and cursing, which is very clearly laid out in the law of Moses or the law of God, the book of Moses. You see, the law, what God presented to his people was not an arbitrary obstacle course. Some kind of a a contest, a, a Simon Says sort of activity. But it was truth. It was truth that would lead his people to him. It would shape them so that they could understand and know him more intimately. Even those ceremonial laws that we scratch our head about and we we don't understand them. They were all to communicate to God's people who he is so they could walk closely with him and to disobey To disobey, you'd be going against truth, going against God and wandering off on your own. God is saying, run true. Run to me and all will be well. Any other direction, there will be expected results. You ignore the signs, you ignore the laws, 
you'll leave the road. You may get through the ditch, but there's no question about what will eventually happen. And yet sometimes in this world, we're so dumbfounded when we go against truth and things go wrong. I remember one night when we were living on Lion's Line, a man came to the door and he said he had a problem. He says, my car won't start. I thought, we're, we're okay. His car won't start. I mean, I have a mechanic that lives to the east of me, a mechanic that lives to the west of me, and a mechanic that's across the road. We should be able to deal with this. My, my car won't start. So I said, well, let's, let's go take a look at it. So we went out to his car. The fender was hanging off. There was at least one flat tire. The mirrors were ripped off. There was mud all over the side of the car. His problem was not just that his car would not start. I mean, it wouldn't start. Oh, and there was fluids leaking out of the bottom of the car, too. He had left the road. I don't know where he was driving. And I don't know how he even got out of where he was driving. Because I think the car spent some time on its side. And you know what I found out later? As I took that guy home. This was only a metaphor for his life. It wasn't his car. It was his girlfriend's car. He was in this car with another man who wasn't sure he was a man. Yet on the way home, this guy told me as I shared the Lord with him that he had a girlfriend or fiance in Bible college when he was in Bible college. And that she had died of cancer. And he had held that against God ever since. And I said, and how is that working out for you? God doesn't tell us everything is going to go well for us. But he shows us how we can walk through this life in an intimate relationship with him. And so often we turn our back on him and there's an expected result a result that we expect our life will not go well yet many times we stand there blinking going well i can't understand you see, God offers us blessing. Blessing, what happiness with obedience. And we choose to happily disobey. God hasn't presented us some huge mystery here. He's not said, okay, there's three doors, you've got to pick the right door. <laughs> and we don't know what's behind them. He always made it so clear that Jeremiah 16, I think, says this is an ancient path. It's a known path. 
God says, obey me. That's basically what his law is. Do what I ask you to do. There will be joy and happiness. Everything will turn out right? No, not always. But there'll be joy and happiness because you'll be in relationship with me. He, he wanted to make this so clear that he said to the Israelite people, when you make it to the land, he had given them the law. He said to Moses, tell them this. When they get to the land, there are going to be two mountains. There's going to be Ebal. There's going to be Gerizim. Half the tribes are going to go up onto Gerizim. Half the tribes are going up onto Ebal. And they're going to do this antiphonal thing back and forth. Blessing. And they would go through all the ways that you could obey. Blessing for this. Blessing for this. Blessing for this on Gerizim. And on the other one, on Ebal, they would say, Disobey, you do this, you do this, you do this, cursing, 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 cursing. God wanted to make this as clear as he could. And he has. And yet, people still choose to disobey, to go their own way. So Daniel in his prayer here is saying calamity that we've experienced Jerusalem being decimated the exile what's going on here it's a curse that we have chosen through our disobedience this calamity should be no surprise to us it's what happens It's what happens when we go our own way, when we turn our back on God and truth. This isn't getting any better, is it? Well, let's finish this off, this prayer. Verses 16 to 19. After confession, repentance, led into by Jeremiah, After understanding from Moses that this calamity is all because of a curse that we've walked into, Daniel remembers, and we do too, with the Lord we remember we can still call out for compassion. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people 
are called by your name. You see, through understanding the Lord, Daniel knows that he, that they can still call upon him because he's a compassionate God. Two-thirds of this prayer, the first two-thirds of this prayer, so negative in terms of our sin, a calamity of our own making. And yet, who is God? He's a compassionate God, and his gracious character is the basis of the plea for forgiveness, for compassion, for mercy. Daniel doesn't sit there and minimize his sin or Israel's sin. He doesn't misrepresent their goodness, make it bigger than it really is. Do we sometimes do that? Is that what forgiveness is usually all about? Please forgive me, but really what I meant was wasn't as bad as you thought. And I'm really a pretty good person. We do that with other people. We do that with God. Daniel is total disclosure. And that's what repentance is. Confession is agreeing with God about the truth of the situation. He's righteous. We're not. We're sinners. We've done wrong. We have rebellious hearts. But even at that, Daniel comes before God. And he calls out for compassion. Not because of a false understanding of who he is, but with a, an understanding of who God is. His character and his commitment. You hear what he says there. He says, according to your righteousness, God. That's why we're calling out for compassion. For your sake, forgive us. He says that twice. For your sake. Why? Because God needs to be consistent in his character and his covenant that he's made with his people. Lord, save us for your sake, for your good name. Do prayers like this have more leverage? (laughs) We come to God like that. God, you know, you better forgive us because you're a forgiving God. Is that what it is? Or is it just that people who truly pray like this have a better understanding of who God is? They're in a more intimate relationship with him. And Daniel is simply saying things that God has already said. about himself you see this is the only way to come to God the only way to truly come to God is through repentance and confession and contrition if we're not praying with repentance we're not really coming to God we're not really standing before him if we're not coming to Christ in repentance we have not come Christ 
want to read a few verses from Acts chapter 3, verse 19 and following. It says, Repent therefore, Acts 3.19, if you're turning there. Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. All of those things that we have done wrong that have been dragging us down even in this message as we've talked about it, we've been reminded about our wickedness, our evil, our turning away, our disregard for God. All of that can be blotted out when we turn to God in repentance. Turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that time, the times of refreshing or that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, from being in his presence. And that he might send, may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's amazing. This situation, Daniel's prayer, not just excitement, we're going to be out from under Babylonian rule, He was concerned about the restoration of the relationship. And it's a prayer of repentance for the rebellion, for our sin that brings hope for renewal to the relationship. It's not because we understand the timing. Oh, God's coming back. Christ is going to return soon. Everything. No, it's about being in right relationship with God so that whenever he comes back, we'll be ready. It's not trying to twist ourselves around and make ourselves seem more fit to receive forgiveness. No. It's understanding that we're not. That it is all on God. That it is his mercy. And in this sort of an interchange of prayer, we discover... Or we deepen our understanding that God is a truly merciful God to us who are truly sinners. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before you with a open heart, ready to learn, ready to hear from from this man, Daniel, a guy who, what we don't know, we know he wasn't perfect, but we don't know of deep sin. We see him as being a faithful guy, but we understand. We understand the intimacy he had with you through this prayer, and it was an intimacy that was gained. An intimacy that was growing because of repentance, because of an understanding of, of their sin.
Lord, we would ask that you would help us to know you better. We know we can't skip any steps here. So we're asking you to help us to be repentant. Help us to have hearts and minds that are open and allow you to probe and point out, convict us of sin, of ways where we wander, we focus on other things, other things become our God, our priority in this life. And there are times where we just flat out do things that you have told us don't do. We want intimacy restored in our relationship with you. Lord, help us to be truly sorry for what we have done wrong against you. We pray that you would restore our relationship with you. More than understanding all the prophetic clues that we would know you, the God who has planned all things and that we would be walking in step with you so that when we face the the difficulties and challenges of this sinful world, we would have this confidence that, yes, but I'm walking with the Lord. I'm working at following him. I can be a confident child that's walking in the Lord's discipline, a disciple, a true disciple, living out perfect obedience imperfectly as they continue to come back to God and say, Lord, forgive me for my failures. Forgive me for walking away from truth. Forgive me for disobeying and help me to want to honor you, worship you, lift up your name more than anything else so that you might be exalted, your son might be lifted up, our savior, so that this world will know that you are merciful, a loving a forgiving God, a God who is worthy of their honor as well. We pray this in your name, for your sake. Amen.